Hi, this is The Tangled Podcast. I'm Julian DiLorenzo. Tangled is a show that looks at how we can use ideas from nature to build more effective and sustainable systems in our businesses and communities. This episode features Dr. Brian Von Herzen. Brian is the founder and executive director of the non-profit Climate Foundation, which is based in Massachusetts. Brian is an ocean scientist, an engineer, and an entrepreneur. He has spent decades doing academic research, working in Silicon Valley, and leading environmental projects around the world. His work focuses on attaining food security for the growing human population and ensuring the survival of the world's non-human ecosystems. From this understanding of how ecosystems cycle and recycle resources, Brian hopes to figure out ways to take excess carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and balance it back into the soils and deep oceans, thereby reducing global warming. In our conversation, Brian also talks about saving Greenland from permanently melting using his idea of a massive popsicle, reversing coral bleaching on the Great Barrier Reef, increasing the world's soil fertility with biochar, and why he hopes to see cows on beaches. Brian is an optimistic polymath, and his ability to come up with good ideas and then make them happen is beyond impressive. You can find out more about Brian's work at climatefoundation.org. And if you'd like links to any of the people, projects, or books we discuss, the show notes are at tangledpodcast.com. I have to apologize for the audio quality, but even still, I hope you enjoy the discussion I had with Dr. Brian von Herzen. I'll just start by saying I think it's rare to see someone who studies the effects of climate change and who is optimistic about the future, but you seem to be part of that small group. Maybe you could just start by describing the work you do and what you're hoping to achieve and, and why you are optimistic. Yes, uh, thank you. Um, At the Climate Foundation, we focus on really understanding the way nature provides nutrient value chains. And before man's intervention, uh, these nutrient value chains can be thought of as the currency of a natural ecosystem. Uh, One set of organisms uh, would develop nutrients um, either from inorganic materials, as plants do, or heterotrophically. And what they would do is is provide those, uh, develop those nutrients, build up their uh, organisms, and then, of course, pass them on to the next trophic level. And by studying these nutrient value chains, we can understand how do ecosystems work, what is their medium of exchange, and what happens when man interferes, either with global warming or with other processes, uh, perhaps by extraction of certain game species um, and trying to understand how those work. So by studying these nutrient value chains, we can identify gaps in those value chains and see and look for opportunities to uh, fill those gaps and enable nature to uh, restore its efforts in doing what it's been doing for eons, and that is balancing carbon in the atmosphere, in the oceans, and in the soils. Right. So your your foundation, the Climate Foundation, its its main stated aim is to attempt to remove large amounts of carbon from the atmosphere. Is that is that correct? Well, it goes beyond that. First of all, we're uh, just back from a conference in uh, called Carbon Farming in the Midwest United States, and they were 
quoting figures of up to 11.2 billion people by 2100. And a population of 11.2 billion will have to get nearly half its protein from the sea. And yet if our, our seas have collapsed, if our fish are dead and our seas have collapsed and we have no more commercial fisheries, how will we continue to sustain the 11.2 billion people on this planet? So we start with food security at the Climate Foundation and we go beyond food security and beyond feeding 11 billion people to the question of how do we also provide enough food and sustenance for the ecosystems of the earth as well. And so that question of ecosystem survival in a warmer world is a central question for us. And then beyond that, um, we really want to understand not only ecosystem survival, but given these natural processes for cycling nutrients, for providing sustenance to uh, humans and the 8 million species that can't vote, can we balance carbon from the atmosphere into the soils, into the middle and deep ocean, where it can remain for centuries and millennia and help us to balance the uh, atmospheric carbon budget? Maybe that's a, a good spot to, to get you to just give a quite try to give a brief explanation of, of what marine permaculture is. Yes. Well, with marine permaculture, we recognize that in subtropical and tropical waters, like those off of Australia, the global warming has effectively decreased and shut down natural overturning circulation. And that shutdown of overturning circulation means there's less oxygen in the water, but it also means there are fewer nutrients available to the plants, the kelp forests and the plankton forests that make up the ocean plants and comprise and generate half the oxygen that we breathe. So if you take in a deep breath, half of that breath comes from the kelp forests and the plankton forests of the ocean. And the question we ask is, can we restore that overturning circulation, provide the nutrients that kelp forests and seaweed forests are used to, and cool off the mixed layer enough with the cool, deeper water to be able to prevent the coral bleaching from starting in uh, portions of the Great Barrier Reef that are downstream from the marine permacultures. So effectively, it creates overturning circulation. Uh, it, it irrigates a square kilometer of kelp forest, and we create enough fish habitat to enable forage fish to begin to recover because they need habitat at least as much as they need food in order to sustain themselves. Right. And, and when you're, you're referring to overturning circulation, you're talking about bringing cold, nutrient-dense water up from the deep and dispersing it near the surface. Is that, is that right? Yes. Naturally, when wind blows off the coast of, let's say, Queensland or New South Wales, if it's a westerly wind, it actually causes wind shear on the surface of the water, which causes the surface waters to move away from Australia further to the east, and that opens space for deeper water to come up to the surface. 
This is natural overturning circulation caused by wind shear. And there are other types of it as well, in mesoscale eddies and other uh, features on the ocean. So when uh, the 93% of global warming goes into the ocean today, most of it disproportionately goes into the surface ocean, and that creates an energy barrier to that natural overturning circulation, such that the same amount of wind stress as we normally have is not sufficient to bring that higher nutrient water up to the surface and irrigate the kelp forests that need it so badly. Right, I understand, or at least understand more than I more than I did. Okay, could could you explain the the, the pump system that you've developed for bringing the water up? Yes, we started with a wave driven pump system, and in some place like Tasmania, and I just heard that last month they reported a twenty eight meter wave during the major storm event. That's the largest wave recorded in history, uh, to my knowledge, uh, by some buoys just east of uh, Tasmania, between Tasmania and New Zealand. So that record-setting wave is symbolic of the storminess of the seas between Tasmania and New Zealand. And those waters are high-energy waters that have lots of wave energy. And that wave energy can be utilized to bring up hundreds of thousands of cubic meters of seawater per day. And that energy is sufficient to restore overturning circulation in areas that have seasonally and even year-round larger swells, such as South Australia, even up near Perth, there's quite a few waves that uh, come in from the Southern Ocean. In general, I think, at least from the work of yours that I've, I've been able to see, it seems like you can combine multiple mindsets when you're approaching a problem. Uh, what I mean by that is I, I think it, I think you can think of things through a, a theoretical scientific perspective as well as the practical engineering perspective. And then you also seem to be comfortable using entrepreneurial skills to make your ideas viable. I'm not sure if you'd characterize yourself that way. or How would you describe your process of coming up with ideas and then making them a reality? Well, yes, my background does reflect that broad experience. I grew up in Woods Hole. My father was an oceanographer. And so I grew up uh, learning the basic science of oceanography, uh, marine ecology, and really understanding the physical, chemical, and biological processes in the ocean. Then um, I got a degree in physics, and, and then at Caltech, um, did my graduate work in planetary science and in engineering and applied sciences, and uh, worked for three years with the observatory, uh, Caltech, uh, observatory in Hawaii and developed instruments for helping uh, scientific observations. And then uh, over a period of around three decades, I uh, worked in Silicon Valley in a more entrepreneurial context of developing entrepreneurial products for Silicon Valley. And in doing some of that work, we had the occasion to do some travel. And part of that travel was over Greenland. And we saw Greenland doubling its melting each year in an exponential way to the point where in 2012, 97% of the surface of Greenland melted. And with that kind of staggering change going on, uh, realized, we realized that we needed to do something. And so we started to apply uh, those basic science ex experiences and skills with uh, applied um, technology development and in fact, the entrepreneurial aspects of Silicon Valley 
bringing them all together to effectively, uh, well, enable transformative solutions that are actually economically sustainable. And that's the goal that we have for marine permaculture, is to have sustainable revenues from the seaweed and from the fish and to provide ecosystem services like Great Barrier Reef cooling to prevent coral bleaching on a sustainable scale that can grow economically over time. So it is a combination. Uh, we find that the, the greatest opportunities lie between disciplines, in this case, between the entrepreneurial discipline of Silicon Valley entrepreneurialism to the basic science and understanding of where our ocean is and, and where our climate is going and how we could use these challenges to present opportunities to address food security challenges of mankind, as well as uh, ecosystem preservation and ultimately carbon balance. That that gap between disciplines that you're talking about, is that getting better at working in that space? Is that something that you think people just have to, to work out as they go? Or is there, are there ways people can actively try to get better or improve their, their way of thinking um, in that way? Well, I think gone are the days where we are in one field for our entire lifetimes. I think it's necessary for people to be much more agile in their thinking because there are so many business disruptions. I mean, think of the self-driving car as an example. In a, in a short decade, we're going to have most trucks being driven automatically. And what will all the truck drivers do unless they reinvent their careers? And from that perspective, we have to think of education as a lifelong activity because we can expect career displacements on a broad scale. Our governments need to support citizens that choose to retool themselves and re-educate themselves in a, in a new field. And I think it will become the norm to have two or three careers in one's lifetime in perhaps disparate fields because the needs of the nation and the world change on an increasing, um, increasingly rapid timeline. So from that perspective, uh, we've gone from basic research to uh, applied science and, and directly to entrepreneurial projects. And that combination actually, I think, can be a strength. And being able to bring those uh, capabilities to one of the biggest challenges that we have as people on this earth in this century, and that is balancing our carbon emissions and being able to reduce those emissions and then rebalance the carbon budget for our atmosphere. That's our biggest challenge and opportunity this century. And I think we need to bring to bear all of our skills and experience to enable that to happen. And I think there, there's been um, not enough discussion from technologists uh, in the past on how we can do these um, these objectives and these solutions in uh, sustainable ways. You mentioned Greenland melting. Um, could could you tell me about the the idea or the concept you have for trying to uh, refreeze the ice up there? Well, there has been some discussion with the Polar Arctic Group, and you know, each winter it gets very cold up in the Arctic and around Greenland, and so uh, we have a notion of a popsicle that we're just developing at the present time, and that's to use renewable energy to pump enough seawater up onto the surface that'll freeze very quickly on the surface of the ice, 
and form a uh, thicker and thicker popsicle, as it were, that might extend more than 100 meters uh, below the surface and beyond the sea ice, and yet be a very uh, solid mass of ice that would last the entire summer. So this is a beginning, let's call it a building block, uh, that would provide ice that would last year-round. That's amazing. And and so it, it, it seems like it will be a feasible project? Well, I think there's technical feasibility and there's economic feasibility. Right. And starting with the technical feasibility, uh, we're exploring and investigating approaches that could use technologies similar to marine permaculture, where we have to pump large volumes of water to the surface. Um, similar, you know, similarly, we need to uh, do that in the development of large ice popsicles, as it were, on the, uh, in the Arctic. And yet, that could be a building block to retaining much of the sea ice that we're losing today and keeping our albedo up so that the, all the heat of global warming can reflect back into space in the Arctic each summer rather than being absorbed by the Arctic Ocean. That project particularly sounds sounds amazing. Um, I'm interested in the circular economy or the ideas around the circular economy. Um, I know you've got plans to, well, I mean, I suppose the marine permaculture definitely fits into that that sort of framework, but um, you, have, you have other plans for circular economy projects. Could you tell me about those? Yes, there are ways to combine the marine permaculture approach of seaweed and fish with the normal inputs and outputs of cities on the coastline. So, for example, cities eat a lot of fish. Uh, Marine permaculture provides fish. That's a natural connection. But then furthermore, cities generate wastewater, and that wastewater needs to be processed. And traditionally, you've got wastewater, which is treated at least to class B, level, which means it's suitable for non-food crops, and that gets distributed around. But we've developed an approach to take, combine the wastewater with the waste heat of thermal power plants, and that waste heat can actually serve as a pasteurization process. Much as you would pasteurize milk, for example, uh, you could also pasteurize the wastewater given a sufficiently large waste heat source. And so we're considering some approaches like that to create class A biosolids, which would be suitable for use on food crops, and furthermore, class A effluent that would be suitable for use on a marine permaculture. That would enable full circular economy of nutrient cycles, and those nutrient cycles would enable the generation of seaweed, the generation of fish, the use of those fish in commercial settings, and furthermore, being able to process uh, a waste water product with a liability cost into a higher value product, providing nutrients to agricultural and aquacultural processes. In terms of a practical, uh, practically putting that into place, it would would the power plant have to be physically quite close to the coast or to, to everything else that uh, is a part of the process? Yes, there are a number of power plants that utilize steam as a working fluid, and any steam power plant or steam industrial process will usually have a condenser in a closed cycle. The condenser condenses the steam, but also generates a lot of heat at temperatures of 90 to 100 Celsius. And those temperatures 
are ideal for the pasteurization process that we envision. I know you've also done a lot of work with biochar. Uh, can, you, can you explain what that is exactly and why it, it has the potential to help mitigate climate change? Yes, I was first introduced to biochar by Sir James Lovelock approximately a decade ago. And he wrote in The Vanishing Face of Gaia that biochar was one of the few technologies that could sustainably sequester gigatons of carbon dioxide in the soil year in and year out for decades to come. And I viewed that as a really interesting and useful positive outlier, a bright spot, as it were, that would enable us to potentially utilize agricultural residues and instead of those residues rotting each year, they could be converted pyrolytically into char, which would leave some percentage of that carbon fixed in the soil for centuries, if not millennia. Sorry to, to, inter- sorry to interrupt, just py- pyrolytically, does that mean involving fire? Yes. Well, pyrolytically is more, more specific. Uh, pyrolysis is heating up of a material, let's say, uh, a, let's say a agricultural residue material, to up to a high temperature in an atmosphere that's devoid of oxygen. So if you don't allow any air going in, but you still heat it up, what it'll do is it'll generate uh, half of it will be char, like the black, like a, a char you might get inside your oven if you overcook something, and then half of it goes to syngas which is a gas that is uh, generated. It's basically the combination of hydrogen and carbon, uh, carbon monoxide. And so that syngas can be combusted fully to drive the temperature for the entire process. And the uh, char is then in uh, gra- graphene form, and it's unavailable biologically, so it, it provides a great substrate in the soil for compost and fertilizers and microbial communities. Amazing. And so you, you've developed a, a transportable biochar uh, reactor. Is that is that what you would call it? Yes, uh, we have. Um, this biochar reactor can take waste material. It can take, for example, crop residues and convert those crop residues to char. And so instead of rotting, the biochar then becomes a substrate for composting. And the great thing about starting your compost with char is that it makes the compost more aerobic, which is exactly what's needed for the composting process. The compost itself inoculates the char with microbial communities, and over a period of weeks, that builds up. And by the time the composting is finished, it produces a substantially improved soil amendment that is able to retain the phosphate and the potassium, while at the same time enabling the microbial communities to render the soluble nitrate insoluble. And when it's insoluble, the rains will not wash the nitrate runoff into the waterways and the groundwater. Instead, the nitrate will be retained near the roots of plants where it can do some good in fertilizing those plants and enabling those plants to thrive. Are these reactors on the market? Can can people get their hands on them? We have developed a number of sizes of biochar reactor, and yes, we work uh, ourselves and with partners to provide um, 
biochar reactors up to a container size that can process up to five tons an hour of input material and produce tons of char each day. Wow. And theoretically, if a farmer or, or you know, someone with, with uh, yeah, I suppose a farmer would be the best example, um, were to purchase one, uh, would it be likely that they sort of recover their costs through the, their increased fertility and the less need for them to, to buy artificial fertilizer in, in the long run? Yes, especially in the case of marginal soils where you're dealing with uh, depleted soils that aren't particularly productive. In some cases, they may be saline soils, etc. The biochar amendment in conjunction with compost and microbial communities has the greatest effect on the smallest farms with the poorest soils and the least application of fertilizer. That's where we see double productivity in some regions with biochar amendments. As a general question, I'm curious how you manage your time. How do you decide which project you're going to sit down to on any given day? Well, we view this as all parts of the same challenge and opportunity. And that is, how do we restore life to the seeds and life to soils? Because it's the living soils that build up the terra preta, the dark earth, that is so rich and abundant on the, on the forest floor. And you see, for decades, we didn't understand that it's the living soil beneath the trees and plants that actually determine the productivity of the earth. And yet, it's, it's as if it's the 80% of the iceberg that's underwater. It's the 80% of the story of life that is beneath the surface of the soil. And that's what we need to understand. And so in a real sense, whether it's by land or by sea, these understandings of life in the ocean and life in the soil are essential to keeping Mother, mother Nature thriving in an uh, increasingly disturbed world. So you know, from day to day, we find times, in fact, uh, circular economies that involve seeds and soils, since we find that uh, we, we have to restore nutrient levels. We have to track the nutrient value chains. And oftentimes those go from the mountains to the sea and back again. And so it's by following those nutrient value chains and filling the gaps in a climate-disrupted world that we're able to regenerate the production of life in natural ecosystems on land and in the ocean and ensure that we'll have enough food supply to sustain the 10 billion plus people that we have to be prepared for in the decades to come. I heard you mention before the idea of positive outliers. Um, can, can you explain that idea and why, why they're important? Yes. One of the, my favorite stories is that after the Vietnam War, uh, there were a lot of physicians going to Vietnam to try to address the challenge of starvation in the post-war environment. And um, it was a very dire situation with millions of children starving uh, and starving to death and, uh, from time to time. This, um, there were uh, one, or, one or a few physicians who were looking for the exceptions. And they did find there were a few exceptions. Some children um, weren't doing as badly. And they interviewed 
their mothers to try to understand what was happening differently. And the mothers identified that instead of two balls of rice per day given to the children, they would get four half balls of rice per day, so it was more evenly distributed. And in addition, um, normally, you know, they, that the mothers were giving their children small little bits of crab carapace and chitin left over from little bits of shellfish and whatnot on top of the rice. And these little bits of protein that were added to the diet that normally grew from small crustaceans at the edge of the rice field anyway, these little critters were providing enough protein for the children to start gaining weight and start gaining muscle mass. And this was the positive outlier that resulted in the saving of millions of lives of children in Vietnam because one physician managed to notice that bright spot, that positive outlier, where it seemed like a few of the kids weren't starving and dying, they were surviving. And by replicating that success a million times over, these physicians were able to save millions of lives. Mm, wow. So And so you sort of consciously keep your eye out for projects or ideas that that are the positive outliers in, in your field. Exactly. We're, all, we're always looking for nature or man to be doing something right. And when we notice something unusual that's working better than it should, um, that's a key indicator of a positive outlier. And we've had several of those. <laughs> we, when we did our first marine permaculture for 57 hours, after two weeks, uh, we went back to get the equipment and bring it back out of the water. And there was a 17-foot-long whale shark that was still eating the plankton that we had generated, the, the microalgae that had been generated from the marine permaculture two weeks after the pumping had stopped. And to me, that was an enormous natural validation that we were on the right track with marine permaculture, that we had created something so wonderful that the 17-foot-long whale shark had taken up residence around our system and had been chowing down for two weeks and enjoying the fruits of our labor. That That is definitely something that I suppose would, would keep you motivated. Um, but I suppose on that topic of motivation, I think a lot of people might start projects with a lot of motivation or you know start trying to do things to help uh, the environment, but then they, they might come, come up against the inertia of politicians or society in general. Um, you've obviously found ways to, to keep your projects moving. Do you have any, any tips on, on how you can stay motivated? Well, I think there are several ways. I mean, uh, the positive outliers are a big motivation for me. I'm remembering a story off San Diego where there was a sewer pipe that was going into the sea. And of course, they've got kelp forests off of San Diego. But it was very funny. There was this problem where I believe there was a break in the sewer pipeline uh, and that breakage had caused some leakage. Uh, and so it took some months for them to, to fix it. But in the intervening months, it was noticed that the kelp forest grew bountifully better near the sewage outfall leak than it did under other conditions in other places. And that's a very good indicator that the macronutrients, perhaps minus the pathogens, of the wastewater outfall was, in fact, a very positive factor to the thriving of the kelp. 
And we use that as a positive outlier to think about our circular value chains and circular economies that may be possible by tracking the nutrients from city to ocean and to uh, seaweed and fish. So uh, we see that as another positive outlier example uh, that motivates us on an ongoing basis. And to that end, we're really appreciative of the support that we've gotten from uh, organizations like the Australian uh, Department of Foreign and Tra- Affairs and Trade, uh, which launched the Blue Economy Challenge in 2016 and provided us with the funds that we needed to develop the Phase Two marine permaculture and deploy it this year in Indonesia to ensure food security for the nation of Indonesia. So, so sorry, did you say you have already deployed it in Indonesia now or you're going to be this year later? We will be deploying it uh, later this year in Indonesia, and that'll enable us to validate uh, growing commercially relevant seaweeds better with a deeper water, as we have seen in the past with these other uh, nutrient streams that have been available. Do you have any any recommended books or other resources if people are interested in learning more about geoengineering or climate change solutions in general? Well, we like to frame this in terms of uh, providing food security to the world and restoring ecosystems. And to that end, this is very much along the lines of Drawdown, which is a book by Paul Hawken that talks about 100 solutions uh, balancing the ecosystems on our planet and drawing down carbon. And I'm very happy to say that not only marine permaculture, but also cows on a beach represent two of the up-and-coming ways of drawing down carbon on our planet that are showcased in Drawdown. And we view these as part of the regenerative economy. So the Commonwealth of Nations is using the, the uh, drawdown approaches as a blueprint for regenerating the economies of all 53 Commonwealth nations. And I would encourage all of us to find opportunities to come together and to look for the opportunities that can be developed locally to utilize drawdown technologies to regenerate our economies, regenerate our ecosystems, and measure the carbon export that we can achieve using ecosystems on land and in the sea. And so with that approach, uh, you know, the Commonwealth represents more than a billion people and perhaps a third of um, all the land area, and it represents an enormous opportunity for us to, um, you know, between the land area and the sea area, to be able to... um, make a transformative difference and really set up a positive example for the entire world when it comes to approaches to uh, sustainably living on our planet and paying it forward to the ecosystems that keep us alive. Just just before you mentioned two projects, you had said the kelp forest and then did you also say the cows on a beach or did I mishear you? Yes, the second approach, it turns out there are some red seaweeds that grow right off of um, the coast of uh, Australia, uh, Queensland, and New South Wales. Uh, These red seaweeds, called asparagopsis, uh, have been demonstrated by CSIRO to uh, eliminate most of the enteric methane of ruminant livestock when provided at a 1% feed supplement level. So we're developing the seaweeds that can provide that nutrient supplement to cows, to cattle, to sheep, to goats, and 
eliminate most of the enteric methane emissions. And we see this as a big opportunity going forward because um, these domestic livestock represent 42% of all of the methane emissions that are caused by man. And so this opportunity to uh, reduce that figure by a factor of 10 is very appealing and can have a transformative effect on the greenhouse gas emissions of each country. Amazing. Uh, so how, how far is, has that pro- project progressed? So far, there have been trials uh, in, in the test tube, so to speak, and then trials with a few uh, test livestock in sheep and in cattle. And right now, we're beginning to uh, discuss some larger trials with livestock and to uh, actually move forward with a plan to uh, scale it and to be able to grow large amounts of seaweed offshore that can address the need for uh, livestock to supplement their diet with seaweed. They naturally eat seaweed on the beach. Uh, I've seen cows and sheep eating seaweed. In fact, there are deer in New Zealand that come down to the beach at night and eat seaweed off the shore. And uh, that's well known because the hunters follow them and hunt them on the beach. (laughs) So it's a well-known phenomenon. And uh, I'm very glad to see these ruminant livestock uh, eating seaweed naturally. And it's a natural part of their diet. And in this case, it also manages to improve their digestion, resulting in healthier and happier livestock that may even gain weight uh, more easily than, um, than without the seaweed feed supplement. Yeah, again, that sounds like another amazing project. Uh, is, there anything, oh, thank you. is there anything you've changed your mind about recently? Well, that's a good question. There, there are one or two things. Um, sea level change, uh, the sea level rising, is a problem that's going to be with us for decades, if not centuries, to come. And the Earth system is capable of three-meter sea level rise in century timescales with uh, carbon dioxide levels of 280 parts per million rather than 400-plus parts per million. So the Earth system has demonstrated an ability for sudden sea level rise of enormous magnitude that would affect most coastal cities on Earth in, in very extreme ways. So this is a very serious problem. And I used to think that this problem uh, was completely intractable, that in fact, uh, we've baked in enough global warming to melt much of the West Antarctic ice sheet and much of the Greenland ice sheet as well. And this is very concerning. However, recently, just in the last quarter, we're beginning to consider approaches that could potentially begin to address the warming that's going into the high latitudes and begin to address how we might keep these ice sheets from melting and, and how we might keep them from sinking most of the coastal cities on Earth. And that's, that's a big deal. I mean, uh, it's, it's a huge question to consider. And it's one that um, is a very slow and at the moment somewhat inevitable 
consequence, but it's one that we may be able to address by um, sufficient creative approaches that are based upon natural processes. Again, good luck with continuing the development of all of those. Um, this is this is slightly off topic, but I understand Richard Feynman was a mentor of yours while you were at Caltech. Uh, I've I've loved reading his books. I've learned a lot from them. He seemed like a unique character. Do you have any specific memories of him or, or ways that he helped you as a younger scientist? Yes, I I remember several. He told me to uh, vote with. Vote with your feet. And what that meant was choose projects that had a special meaning to you. And for me, the work that we do with restoring nutrient value chains on land and in the sea has enormous meaning because it ensures potentially food security for billions of people. It ensures that we can keep our ecosystems alive. And, you know, if the 8 million species on this planet that can't vote could, I have to ask if they would vote us off the island. And what I would hope in return rather rather is for us to uh, provide enough sustenance to keep those 8 million species alive as well as keeping ourselves alive. And that's a big opportunity. And if we can balance carbon at the same time and erase our carbon footprints that we've expended over the last century or two, that would be even better. So I see this vote with your feet as being essential. Another one of his favorite sayings was, there's plenty of room at the bottom. And in this case, I think of it in the context of middle and deep ocean containing 55 times more carbon dioxide than the entire atmosphere of the earth. And there is room for plenty more. It's a matter of enabling the biological pump of the ocean to naturally remove carbon from the surface ocean, the photosphere where 99% of life lives, and to remove it from that surface into the middle and deep ocean where uh, there's plenty of room for more. And I think that's an essential context for us to think in terms of as well. And uh, the same would be applied to soils where there's an enormous capacity for storing carbon in soils as well. So those come to mind offhand. I loved the way uh, Dick Feynman presented his, his research and his teaching. He was inevitably enthusiastic on the tip of his toes. He uh, was, was uh, excited, and he imparted that excitement to others to the point where they felt as though they could, they could master the uh, principles as Feynman had. And this intuitive leap that was frequently represented by diagrams and illustrations and stories, that's uh, some of the best teaching that I've experienced and really appreciated that about Dick Feynman. I think that's that's probably a, a good place to wrap up. I feel almost guilty uh, taking your time away from everything else that you've you've got to spend your time on. Um, so so Brian von Herzen, thank you very much again for for chatting. My pleasure, Julian. Okay, thanks for listening. You can find show notes with links to all the people, projects, and books that were mentioned in the conversation by going to tangledpodcast.com. If you have feedback, let me know on Twitter. I'm at Julio underscore. That's H-O-O-L-I-O underscore. If you liked the show, please share it and subscribe to Tangled in whichever podcast app you use. You could also rate the show in iTunes, which would be a huge help. 
And finally, you can sign up to my email newsletter. I'll let you know when new podcast episodes are released, and I'll send you a monthly list of good books, articles, and other podcasts to read and listen to. You can sign up at tangledpodcast.com. Thanks again for listening. I'll speak to you next time.